We're in Isaiah 9, one more time this morning, Isaiah 9, 6. Would you turn there with me and would you stand and let's read together the great words of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, chapter 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. He's the prince of peace. Peace eludes us, doesn't it? It eludes us. As much as we long for it, as hard as we work for it, as desperately as we need it, it just seems to be out of reach. And whether it's on the streets of our cities or around the world, whether it's in our homes or within the confines of our own hearts and souls, It's just evading us. It's beyond our grasp. The New York Times in a 2003 article wrote, Of the past 3,400 years, human beings have been entirely at peace, that is globally at peace, for only 268 years. Just 8% of recorded history. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century. Estimates for the total number killed in wars throughout all of human history range from 150 million to 1 billion. War is horrific. And yet peace is about so much more than the absence of war. When two forces oppose one another, make aggressive moves towards one another, often violently, we say, there's no peace. When two parties are unable to walk arm in arm, we say, well, there's no peace. When we find ourselves fearful and frustrated and anxious or agitated, we could say, we're not at peace. And when we're haunted by discontentment, or guilt, or embarrassment, or shame, we're not at peace. There's more. When we find ourselves struggling to make financial ends meet, when we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're tired, when we're ill, when we're injured, when we're lost, or confused, or disillusioned, when we're hurting, we're uncomfortable, maybe we're in danger when we're faced with the reality that we're unable to achieve what our hearts desire, or when we're confronted with the reality that no matter how great other people think that we are, we know deep down inside we're still not who we ought to be. We're not at peace. We long for peace, but it just seems to elude us out of our out of reach 
What is it about peace that makes it so difficult to achieve? Throughout history, philosophers have have examined this. Religious leaders, they've pleaded for it. Countless numbers have fought and have died for it. The people of Judah knew firsthand what it was to be without peace. The kingdom of the north, it had fallen. We made note of that a few weeks ago. They saw its destruction. They heard of the brutality, the inhumanity of the Assyrian hand that had swept through the land. They were desperate for some word of hope, some reason to think that better days were on the way. And that's exactly the moment that they heard the words of the prophet Isaiah. We read his heartening words in Isaiah 9-2 a few weeks ago. How welcome these must have been. The people who walked in darkness have seen great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And notice, just as we did a few weeks ago when we were talking about the pronouncement of this child being born, we noted the tense of these words they're not future it's not future tense it's present tense even though the light that Isaiah was talking about was still to come he speaks of it as if it's here now because God is the one who's going to bring this about you can be absolutely sure you could be so sure that you could talk about it as if it's already happened The outcome is already secured because God, the one who is absolutely sovereign, the one who is in complete control, who accomplishes everything that he wills, because of that, the outcome is secure. And what he said will be. To God, Isaiah says in verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as as with joy at harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. It was on the day of Midian in the valley of Uh, in the valley near the the hill of Morah, that God led a man named Gideon and about 300 soldiers to an impossible victory over countless Midianites and Amalekites. It says their, their, their numbers were too great to put down on paper. That's what this victory will be like. Isaiah continues, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah is not talking about just some temporary reprieve. A truce has been signed. Maybe we can expect peace for a few months, a few years. No, 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 no. You know, our nation may experience periods of peace, but even during those times, those seasons of peace, we maintain our military power. 
And oftentimes we even invest in it. We're constantly looking for new offensive weapons, new defensive technologies. We have warships, we have aircraft that are ready to go at a moment's notice because you never know when you're going to need them. That's not the kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about here. He's speaking of a lasting, definitive peace. One where the assets of warfare, they can be put away for good. You can go ahead and put away those boots. You can take your old military fatigues and you can just throw them in the fire because you're never going to need them again. Peace was coming. But how? But why? Why should they expect this peace? What's the reason behind this dramatic change from the way that the world has operated ever since it began? Is it, are we going to have free yoga lessons here? Given free uh, you know, uh, uh, electric vehicles to everyone? Are we going to save the environment? Are we going to do a ma- mandatory worldwide tolerance education? Is that going to solve the problem? Maybe we just prohibit all religion because that's really the problem. You know, it's all these religious people out there that always the opposing views are fighting one another. Maybe it's some scientific discovery. All of a sudden, we're going to find a cure to world hunger, eradicate it completely. Or maybe aging. Something in the genetic code has been discovered. If we just tweak this a little bit, we don't age anymore. Oh, peace is here. Maybe it's the invention of some political system that is far superior to our own, and this is the one we've been waiting for, and now there's peace. Or maybe we finally have a president in office that everybody can just agree upon. Oh, hallelujah, we're finally at peace. No, it's not that. It's none of that. Isaiah says, unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the brilliant light in the darkness, the liberating force, the solution to ending hostility would be a child. But not just any child. This would be the one who was born human, yet at the same time, he is a gift from God. He's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. But some people still might say, wait a second, a child? A child? Really? Humanity has sought peace for thousands of years. We've done everything imaginable. The people in Judah must have thought, we're on the brink of of being totally obliterated by this Assyrian army. And now somehow, a prince of peace, a tiny child, is going to save the day? You have got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. Get real. We've trusted in great leaders before. And we've been disappointed time and time and time again. Don't don't tease me with this peace child. But don't be too quick to judgment. Because this Prince of Peace, he's going to attack the problem in a way that has never been attacked before. He was not going to bring peace through education 
or social reform or policy or legislation. This Prince of Peace was going to get to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter. See, the problem with peace has never been solved by human hands because the, the problem has to do with humanity itself. The heart of the problem is humanity. The human heart is the problem. Nicholas Black Elk, the famous medicine man, holy man of the Sioux tribe, he lived from 1863 to 1950, and he once said, there can never be peace between nations until there is first known that true peace which is within the soul's of men. There's truth in that statement. The source of unrest in our world, it lies deep within, inside every human soul. The Bible agrees, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? So there's a disease that lurks deep within the confines of every human heart. It's an ailment that has developed from the brink of human civilization. It's been passed down from generation to generation. Let's dive into the backstory just for a moment. In the beginning, we're told that God created. All things came to be at the mere uttering of his voice. So sand and stars, and seagulls, and solar systems, and silkworms were all coming to be. All coming to be for one great purpose. That is to put on display the Creator's magnificence. We read last week from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation exists to bring glory to its Creator. That's why it's here. That's the effect the crashing waves are supposed to have as you stand upon the shore. That's the result that the blazing color-soaked sky is supposed to have as the sun comes soaring over the horizon each morning. The Discovery Channel was right when it said, the world is just amazing. But it's amazing because its creator is amazing. And set apart from all that, humanity was crafted special. Genesis 1.27 tells us, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. While everything else was supposed to point directly to God and to his glory alone, humanity was made uniquely in God's image that it might enjoy its creator have a relationship with him, and then represent the creator to the rest of creation. Above all others, humanity was created to give glory to God in the highest. And yet all of that got flipped upside down in a garden where the very first of our kind said, why should why shouldn't we make ourselves just like God? I mean, why should he alone be the receiver of all the glory? We could just be, be just like him if we just 
did what this serpent tells us. There was no doubt that the Creator alone was the one to be worshipped, that He alone should get the credit, the admiration, the respect, the devotion, but still a great exchange took place there in that garden. And all at once, the glory of the immortal God was exchanged for <laughs> images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We're told that in Romans chapter 1. Hearts were darkened as people traded their created purpose of giving God glory and Him worship, wrapping our lives completely around Him and turning to other things. And there lies the source of the unrest. This is where peace begins to fall apart, exchanging life's intended meaning for anything other than the worship of God, even exchanging it for a number of good things. That can, has, that can have disastrous results. John Lennon was on to something when he sang, all you need is love. He was on to something. Because at the very heart of the human problem is the love of the human heart. St. Augustine, the great early Christian theologian and philosopher, in his confessions, explains that the problem with humanity is what he calls disordered love. It's love out of order. There's an order that our loves are supposed to have. The problem isn't so much that humanity is without love. It's that we love the wrong things or that we love things in the wrong order. For example, a good reputation is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that we should desire, that we teach our children, desire a good reputation. But if your love for your reputation is greater than your love for integrity, well then to protect and preserve your reputation, you might go to any lengths to do so. You might even lie. Money is a good thing to have. You can do lots of wonderful things with it. But if your love of money is greater than your family, it can lead you to neglect your spouse or your children or lead you just to pour yourself into your career because you've got to get more and more. Or maybe that's not even enough and you've got to go to Vegas. Pleasure is a good thing, right? Pleasure is a good thing. It's something God created. He made us people who enjoy things. By definition, pleasure is something that we enjoy. And yet if loving pleasure rises above loving everything else, it can lead you to make decisions that are potentially going to hurt you, hurt others, maybe even destroy the enjoyment you originally got from indulging in that pleasurable activity to begin with. Disordered love, it's the problem that plagues the human heart. We turn to things other than God to alleviate our fears or to satisfy our cravings or to meet needs. And all these other things, every single one of them, they disappoint. Manhattan pastor Timothy Keller, he wrote in his book of a couple years ago, Making Sense of God. It's an incredible book. I should have had copies for you this morning. He writes this, if you love anything more than God, 
you harm the object of your love, you harm yourself. You harm the world around you, and you end up deeply dissatisfied and discontent. And that's the brutal reality, isn't it? That's what we see all around us. And we see people disappointed and discontent. And people, many people, we just saw it this weekend. When a well-respected news person on Channel 5 came to the point where his life was not worth living anymore in his mind. The brutal reality. If you love money, security, or safety more than God, then you end up worrying that you don't have it or you don't have enough of it and you're not at peace. If you love fame and popularity and power more than God, you end up clawing your way to the top, stepping all kinds all over, all, all over other people, doing whatever it takes to reach your objective, damaging person after person after person in your pursuit of it. There's no peace there. If you love beauty and physical fitness and health more than God, then you end up striving to achieve and maintain all the while it's being slowly pried from your fingertips and eventually it's all going to be taken away. You're not at peace. If you even love family more than God, You find yourself bending over backwards to maintain relationships, doing whatever it takes, desperately trying to keep things together, trying to make everyone happy on the surface level, trying to make everyone seem like they're they're loving each other and having a, a good time together. But when things get rocky and children don't walk in step and harmony wanes and all of a sudden your pride suffers and frustration And blood pressure rise. And you feel like a failure. You feel like a failure because somehow this was most important and I couldn't make it work. That's definitely not peace. The heart of the problem with humanity is the human heart itself. While our hearts have been designed to worship God and Him alone, we've turned them towards other things. And this wreaks havoc on our inner peace. It leaves us feeling unsatisfied, disappointed, anxious, frustrated, angry, bitter, hopeless. It also harms our relational peace. We end up frustrating and hurting other people and neglecting them, using them, abusing them. It hurts that peace as well. But most of all, most significant, it affects our relationship with God. And we have fallout within our relationship with our Creator. And Ephesians 2 describes that. We've gone over that passage so many times we should know it by heart by now. Ephesians 2 verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And on and on he goes. And the fallout is is an unrepairable tear in our relationship with God. It's It's an impassable crevasse. I've seen it described often on a napkin. This crevasse that exists between us and God that we've created because of our sin. Colossians 1.21 tells us we were alienated and hostile in mind towards God. 
Romans 5.10 tells us that we've become enemies of God. What a thing to have God as your enemy. (laughs) Ephesians 2.12 says that we were separated, having no hope and without God in the world. That is not a good place to be. The situation is desperate. The loss is tremendous. The hostility and danger have reached a peak. We ask why there is no peace. Here's the reason. It's right here in the pages of Scripture. And that is exactly why the Prince of Peace comes. That's why he comes. A child would be born who would change everything. A child would be gifted from heaven to a desperate humanity. And his mission would be to reverse the exchange and bring peace between creature and creator. On a crisp, cool night, above the peaceful stretch of moonlit fields, the star-studded skies were ripped open, cascading down brilliant light, which engulfed a few lowly, now terrified, shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a sight that must have been. I wish I was there. The dramatic pronouncement of the arrival of the Prince of Peace. This would change Everything. Notice the declaration of his coming. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus would bring that peace that the world needed. The peace he would bring, it's one that finds its beginning in the human heart and its relationship to God. Jesus was a master of peace. In his life, we see him bringing peace to anyone who needed it. He saved the stressed-out hosts of a wedding by turning water into wine when they had run out. He brought sight to those who had none. He brought mobility to those who could not walk. He calmed the winds and the waves to ease the fear of his disciples. He multiplied bread and fish to relieve the hunger pains of thousands. He removed the suffering of a woman who had suffered with bleeding for 12 years. He brought health to the sick. He brought life to the dead, and even while he hung on the cross, promised paradise to the criminal who called to him for help. And that brings us to the doorstep of the real peace that he came to bring. You know, we would all love for those incidental things that disrupt peace in our lives. We would all love for them to just be taken away. But the reality is, the real peace that we need, 
the real peace that Christ came to give us is peace with our Creator. Romans 5.1 is crucial to understanding what Jesus accomplished. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we trust in Jesus. Notice it says, by faith. As we trust in this Prince of Peace and the work that he did in taking each and every one of our sins, as he hung on that cross and paid for them by dying, as we trust in his work, that's when our friendship with God is restored. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Romans 5, 11 tells us that we can now rejoice in the fact that our relationship with God has been made right through Jesus. We can now have our loves reordered and fulfill our purpose for existing bringing glory now to god instead of trying to bring glory to ourselves and isn't it that exactly what is announced by the angels in luke 2 glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased God getting glory from us and our peace, they are directly connected. One pastor said it so well. God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. See, peace comes into our lives when we're fulfilling our mission of glorifying God. The two go hand in hand. You can't say, no, I'm not going to glorify God, but I still want peace in my life. It doesn't work that way. Peace immediately goes away when God is not the most glorious person in your life. It's a peace that begins where our peace first went sideways. It begins in human hearts, and it reorders their loves. It sets them on a trajectory to trust and rely on their creator rather than fight and claw and freak out with anxiety and fear and lose hope when we trust in ourselves for inferior, in, when we're trusting in inferior things. It realigns our hearts to seek happiness and joy and fulfillment in the infinitely sufficient beauty of the riches of God rather than Things that will break down, disappoint us, and fail. It leads our hearts to live honorable, God-pleasing lives. Lives that serve others, that bless others, that help them thrive. Real peace, it's about so much more than the absence of war. The word used for peace here in Isaiah 6 or used in Isaiah 6, I should say. It's used 250 other times in the Bible. It's the word shalom. Shalom describes a peace that reaches far beyond interpersonal relationships. It offers far more than a sense of inner well-being and harmony with others. It's more than that. 
It's a peace that reaches into the deepest confines of human existence and brings us into a good standing, intimate, and joy-filled relationship with God. This is the peace that the world has been searching for. This is the peace that we are hopeless without. Those social programs, the education, the good policy, the legislation, those all have their place. But until the Prince of Peace has his work transforming human hearts, they're going to continue to find their loves out of order. His is the peace that surpasses all understanding and guard hearts and minds. He is the one who says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, because he is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Do you know the Prince of Peace? Is your hope in the Prince of Peace? He has come. His mission has already been accomplished He paid for your sins and for mine on the cross. And through him, forgiveness, reconciliation, and peace is readily available for all of us. All that is to be done is for you and I to trust him. And this is something that those of you who have walked with Christ for many years need to be reminded of that I need to be reminded of. And if there's any in this room who have not come to that place of trusting in Christ, this is desperately needed for you. To come before God and say, God, I have a heart that is broken. My loves are all out of order. You are not at the top. So very often I try to put myself up there or something else and I end up being disappointed time and time again. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did on that cross and taking my sin upon himself and he paid for every single one of them. He made a way for me to come to you, God. Thank you for that. I trust in Jesus. I want you to be at the top of my love list. I want to trust you. I want to be yours. There is nothing better than you. If you're here this morning and you're one of those people, you're not sure that you've come to that point, I urge you, trust in Jesus this morning. For the rest of us, be reminded, be encouraged, because we continue to plod on through these lives and different disruptions continue to come up and they challenge our trust in God. Just like that serpent in the garden, those first two human beings, he says, you know, don't, don't look to him because he's not going to cut it for you. That's what we're told over and over and over again. Be encouraged, be strengthened, trust in Jesus, look only to him.
That's what we're going to do this week as we pray. Let's pray now. Good, awesome, loving God. Lord, we thank you for sending the Prince of Peace. Thank you for Jesus, for what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, I pray, God, that if some do not know this peace that this morning, they would come to know it as they turn their eyes to you and they trust in you with all their heart. Lord, for those of us whose heart affections have shifted and drifted from you, our loves have once again started to reorder and our eyes have fallen from looking only to you and we've looked to other things or we've looked to ourselves, Lord, I pray that you would realign, refocus with the Prince of Peace, have his way in our hearts this morning. Lord, would you alone be the one that we worship and praise and adore and truly enjoy. We love you, Lord. Pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.